0: Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. For all this I considered in mine heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not, as is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yet also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion." For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished, neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works." Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest." I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time as fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare. So are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them." I know that I had announced Wednesday evening that I was thinking about preaching on the second coming this morning and I had that all prepared until I got up Friday morning and the Lord changed my mind. And so we're going to go back into Ecclesiastes this morning and we're going to talk about, as I said a moment ago, we're going to talk about living under the curse. Now you remember that starting in chapter seven, we get into the second half of this book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon focuses on the pursuit of wisdom He's dealt with in the first six chapters all the futile pursuits of life that he had gone after wine and women and song and enjoyment and merrymaking and that sort of the thing. And now he encourages his readers to obtain wisdom. And we're going to talk about wisdom in living under the curse. In chapter seven, he taught us don't shy away from difficult things because they produce wisdom. You'll learn more by going to a funeral than you will by going to a birthday party. You'll learn about life, you'll learn about death, you'll learn about eternity. Don't expect that being righteous and righteous behavior will keep you from suffering. It won't always do it. Don't assume that you can get away with wickedness because God's judgment is waiting. And then God's governing of the world is incomprehensible So real wisdom is this, just submit to what God does and to what God says. Then in chapter 8, we see his call to basically obey the law of the land. One put it this way, to submit to the corrupt rule of the corrupt king. And now in chapter 9, he's going to give us something that is so much easier to handle, and that is the absolute certainty of death, okay? That's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we do that, I want us to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. We're talking about the curse this morning. And in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, we read, beginning in verse 15, And the Lord God took the man, and we're talking about Adam, of course, and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commended the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now Genesis 2 is the chapter in the word of God that renders Adam totally without any excuse whatsoever. God does everything he can, everything possible for Adam to succeed in his obedience to God and his doing and being what God would have him to be. Of course in verse 7 he creates Adam. In verse 8, God puts Adam in a perfect garden, plants him there. And in verse 9, we see that God causes all of the plants of that garden to grow. And God even waters them with a dew, it says, which comes up from the ground. And then as we read in verse 15, God makes his expectation of Adam very clear. Dress and keep the garden, tend it, and you can eat of any tree of the garden except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we get to verse 18 in chapter 2. In verses 18 through 25, God just improves Adam's situation completely because God gives Adam a helper that is sufficient and right for him. He creates the woman. And so now Adam has a suitable helpmate. But when we come to chapter 3, everything blows up, doesn't it? In chapter 3, in the first seven verses, we see the temptation of Eve. The devil comes to her, he tempts her, he gives her this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and Eve submits and eats of the fruit and she gives it to her husband and Adam submits and Adam eats of it. And then in verses 8-19 through we see the curse that comes upon mankind because of the disobedience of Adam, enmity because of the moment he ate of it, he's at enmity with God, and Adam and Eve are hiding from God when they used to walk with God. We see pain, he, God promised her the woman pain and childbearing. We see labor, and ultimately, we see death. And in the final verses of that chapter, they are evicted from the garden. Here, Adam and Eve had lived in this garden, And now they're evicted from it. And God placed a cherubim at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword to keep them out. Now, some have suggested that one of the reasons God did that, it would have been possible, had the cherubim not been there, for them to go back in and eat of the tree of life and as sinners had lived eternally. And that's not going to happen. So God put the cherubim there. Can you imagine what it was like to go from living in a perfect environment, a perfect garden? to being cast out into a sin-cursed world. Somebody put it this way, if you grew up poor, and if you grew up in poverty, and you lived that way all of your life, and you died in that, you really wouldn't know what you'd missed, had you? But if you grew up rich, and then all of a sudden you lost everything, and you went from being rich to being destitute, you would know what you missed, and there would be the pain of what you had lost, and that's what Adam and Eve are going through. And then in chapter 4 of Genesis, the effects of the curse are seen immediately because, first of all, Adam and Eve have two children. They have two sons. We know their names are Abel and Cain. And so Eve endures the pain of childbearing. Next comes labor as we see Cain. You know, Abel was a keeper, a tender of sheep, a keeper of flocks. But Cain did what? He was a farmer. He tilled the ground. He worked the ground. And so he had to farm the cursed earth. And if anybody's ever raised a garden, you know that's a lot of work. Then comes enmity. Because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. Cain becomes angry with his brother. And in fact, next we see death because Cain, in his anger, in his enmity, in his hatred, killed his very own brother. And so it doesn't take long for the curse just to come into full effect. In fact, if you keep reading in the fourth chapter of Genesis, and you look down to verse 19, there was a man named Lamech who introduced polygamy. He said he had taken two wives. Now, I don't know why he wanted to do that, but he took two wives. God had said, you'll leave your mother and father and cleave to your wife. But Lamech had two wives. He brought polygamy to there. And then he committed the first double homicide. He said, I've killed a man and a young man to my hurt. And he tried to justify committing double homicide. But when we get to chapter 5, this fifth chapter of Genesis, then we get To the real sting of the curse. Because if you look at verses 4 and 8 and 11 14 and 17 and 20 and 27 and verse 31. It's giving a list of Adam's descendants. And you know how it ends. And they died. And they died. And they died. And folks the curse is right here in Genesis chapter 5. Now let's jet ahead for about 3,000 years. And we come to the preacher. We come to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you know what? He's still talking about it. He's still talking about this curse that has come upon mankind. And here's the reality. As we're going to approach it this morning, there's one fate for everybody. There's one thing that you can know for certain that is going to happen to you. And you know what that is? You're going to die. Every one of us in this building It is a truth that we cannot avoid. It is a truth that we cannot control. And it is a truth that we cannot forget. Death is waiting for each and every one of us. And we're going to find out we don't know when it will be. Listen, you can eat the right things. You can buckle your seat belt. You can don't run with scissors. Don't play with matches. Watch out for snakes. Drive carefully. Wear a helmet. Look both ways. And still death's going to find you. It is coming. It is going to happen. There's no avoiding the curse. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this the judgment. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world. And death by sin. So death has passed upon all men. So that all have sinned. Every one of us has sinned in Adam. We're going to explain that in a moment. And every one of us has The curse over our heads, the fate that is awaiting everybody, and that is physical death. And first of all, I want you to notice it is a singular fate. Look at these first two verses. Verse one is sort of a transitional, it's a bridge into a new thought. See, at the end of chapter eight, what Solomon has done, he has reminded us that you're not going to understand the way God governs the world. You're not going to understand why God lets certain people rule and why other people don't rule. You just cannot understand it as the scripture says under the sun. And so verse one sort of reiterates that. Look at what it says. For all this I consider in my heart even to declare all this that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. There are a couple of thoughts here. First of all, He says that the works of the righteous are where? They're in the hand of God. Our works, our lives, all depends upon God. No one can guarantee how long they're going to live. And no one can say when they're going to die. It is all in the hand of God. And the other thing is that we have no control over how that plays out in our lives. Look at what he says. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. We don't know what awaits us. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Now Solomon has said this several times as we've gone throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, but he's just reminding us again, you don't know, we can make our plans. Remember, God reminded us of that in the book of James. You can make your plans, but you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that, but we can make our plans, but we don't know what awaits us. The expectation we have is that if I live a righteous life, If I live a good life, if I walk in wisdom, it ought to result in my being loved and appreciated and approved. But the fact is, there is no such guarantee in the word of God. Think about this. The holiest and the wisest person ever to live was nailed to a cross. They took Jesus and they put him on the cross. Now certainly we ought to want righteousness and we ought to want wisdom in our lives and we ought to live that way and they ought to be pursued but they are not a guarantee that bad things won't happen in our lives. We think tomorrow is guaranteed. We like to think that but it's not. Remember David said but there's just a step between me and death. We think good ought to be guaranteed in our lives because we're the children of God. Folks, it is not. Think of somebody like Job. Job was a good man. Job, the scripture says, eschewed evil. Job hated evil. And what happened to Job? Now God allowed him to be tested. What about Joseph, a good son, a faithful son, kidnapped by his own brothers and sold into slavery? Yes, he ultimately became the second in power in Egypt, but you realize he was still a slave in Egypt when he was second in power in Egypt? And here is was a faithful child of God. There is so much that we do not know about our future. But there's one thing that we can be assured of as far as our future is concerned. And that is the fate. That is the curse. Look at verse 2. All things come alike to all. There is one event. And you look down at the end of verse 3. It says they go to the dead. Everybody in this building this morning has a terminal disease. And I'm not talking about COVID. COVID. Everybody in this building has a terminal disease, and that terminal disease is called life. Mother used to say this, and there's so much wisdom to this, we're all going to die if we live long enough. And folks, that's true. That's where we're all headed. And it doesn't matter if you're righteous or it doesn't matter if you're wicked. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or uneducated. Whether you're a sinner or whether you're unclean. Whether you make vows to God or you don't make vows to God. It is coming to us all. We all live under the same curse. Adam and Eve were both created in an uncursed world. But because of Adam's sin, the curse came in. And every human born Afterwards, gets what Adam earned for us. You realize that every person on a sinking ship suffers the fate of that ship. Every person in an airplane that's crashing suffers the fate of that crashing airplane. And again, it doesn't matter your status in life. The plane's going to crash for everybody. The ship's going to sink for everybody on that ship. And we are all on that sinking ship it's impossible to know what your future holds except in one regard and there's only one thing in your future that you can be sure of and again that's the curse, that's the fate that's death and it is not only a singular fact it is a sad fate Look at verses 3 through 10, and we're not going to reread these, but we're going to go through them rather quickly this morning. What is mankind's fate? Well, look at verse 3. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7:18, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. He said, There's nothing good in this stuff, it is sin cursed. And so There's nothing in us that is of value in the flesh. Romans 3.12, he said, There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, God had said through Solomon in the book of Proverbs, he said, All men will declare their goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Oh, we like to think we're good, but the word of God says there's none good, no, not one. And he says, again, that they're full of evil, And madness is in their heart. Now that word madness doesn't mean what we think it means. Madness, when we think of madness today, what do we think of? We think of somebody that just loses their mind. Somebody that goes crazy more or less, right? Well that word madness here has the idea of folly. It has the idea of foolishness. It has the idea of mindless activity. For instance, somebody says, I'm going to take my paycheck and I'm going to cash it and I'm going to spend every bit of it on lottery tickets. What would we say to them? We say, you're mad. (laughs) That's madness. That's foolishness. That's a waste. And so Solomon just says, in the heart of man is evil. And this foolish activity, this mindless activity. See, God gives us an assessment of humanity. And it's a very hard assessment. But it is also a very accurate assessment. And that assessment is this. And he said it in Genesis 6. The thought of man's heart is only evil continually that's all man thinks about and you read that 6th chapter of the book of Genesis as we said a moment ago from Romans chapter 3 there's none that doeth good no not one we're all born in sin and we are headed to death and that is what we call the doctrine of total hereditary depravity and everyone suffers from that Psalm 51 verse 5 David said behold I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me now, he was not saying there was anything wrong with his mother when he was conceived, that she was an evil woman or a vile woman. He just said, I was born with a sin nature. I was born separated from God. Now, if we look at it, it's easy to see why Adam was punished, isn't it? He broke the rule. Adam broke God's one command. That's yeah, right that Adam should be punished, but why should I be punished? Why should all of humanity be punished because of Adam's sin? Well, because Adam fell and we're all born as descendants from Adam. We all came from him. Now, God has in his word, and you find it in the first chapter of Genesis as God is creating or recreating this earth, however you want to look at that. But we find it as God created the plants and as God created the animals. He said, let everything bring forth after his kind. I personally refer to that as God's law of reproduction. Everything's going to produce what it is. What are you going to get from an oak tree? Don't say acorns. Say an oak tree. (laughs) An oak tree will produce an oak tree. A pine tree will produce a pine tree. Why does it do that? Because that's the law. That's the standard that God gave. And when Adam fell, he became a sinner when he disobeyed God. And you know what? The only thing that a sinner can produce is another sinner. We love sweet little precious babies. Just been born. Little Sammy back there in the nursery. Just so beautiful and, and so forth. And he's so sweet, but you know what he is? I know his family won't get offended at me for saying this, but he's a sinner. Born with a sin nature. And that sin nature separates him from God. Well, where did he get it? Ultimately, he got it from Adam. Let me ask you this. Was was Abel better than Cain? Was Noah better than Lamech? Was Abraham better than Lot? Regardless of what you say, here's the fact. They all had one thing in common. They all died. That's the fate. That's the curse. So in verses 4 through 6... Solomon goes on to point out that death, as if we didn't know this, is a very negative thing. And he actually gives us six realities about death as it relates to this life. And we're going to go through this quickly because we really don't like to think about these things. But look at verse 4. First of all, in death there is no hope. In death there is no hope. Look at it. For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. And then he goes on to say this, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, in the ancient East, dogs were not the nice, cuddly little pets that we think they are today. You know, we like to pick them up, hug on them, love on them, and they're they're wonderful and, and all of that. And we've got one and he's taken our hearts. But in the ancient East, dogs were despised. They were mongrels. They were violently hated. Lions were considered noble, okay? But he says here that a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, what does he mean? Even a despised living thing is better off than a noble dead thing. And so he says that in death there is no hope. If a person is sick, what do they have? They have hope of getting better. They have hope of overcoming their illness. But once that body dies, guess what? All that hope is gone. And so in death there's no hope. Then he says in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, in death there's no escape, for the living know that they shall die. We know that. We need to face that. We have to come and eventually we will come face to face with that. Whether we think about it or whether we dwell on it, And you know, we we think about it, but then we like to not dwell on it. I mentioned just a few weeks ago that the life insurance business in this country is a multi-billion or trillion dollar business. We will think about death, but we want to not dwell on it. But he says the living know that they are going to die. Again, Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed unto men. You have an appointment. You'll keep your appointment. You will not be late and you will not cancel your appointment. With death. You're going to be there. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Wages of sin is death. Death is separation. The spirit will separate from the body one of these days. And the spirit will either go into the presence of God. Or into the presence of Satan in torment. But it's going to separate from the body. And that will be called physical death. And so he says the living know they shall die. Now the second part of that in Verse 5, is this, the living know they shall die, but the dead know not anything. He's speaking in matters that pertain to this life, into what's going on into this life. But you see this point. Once a person dies, they're cut off from the land of the living. They don't watch the news anymore. They don't pick up the newspaper anymore. They're separated from the matters of life. They're separated from the matters of the living. I have people ask me, Do you think people in heaven know what's going on on earth? And my response is generally this I really don't. I think it would create too much sorrow. Yeah. You know, maybe a, a grandparent's already died and gone on and been with the Lord. And they see a grandchild that has left the faith, left the truth. Maybe a grandchild that has rejected Christ and on the road to hell. And their hearts are broken with sorrow, if they were to see that. And I just don't think that's going to happen. And so I don't think people in heaven know what's going on on this earth. And so those who have gone on and died, they have nothing to do with what's going on in this life. But also in verse 7, he says this, In death there's no reward, neither have they any more a reward. Now, again, he's not speaking in an eternal sense. He's speaking of life under the sun. When someone dies, you don't reward them. When someone dies, you don't pay them. You know, let's say a man had a wonderful business. He had a profitable business. And he was making good money. And he had a great day one day. And at the end of that day, he passed away. Well, they wouldn't pay him. They might pay his family. But they would not pay him. And so in death, there is no reward. And in the end of verse 5, he says, in death, there's no remembrance, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, obviously, those folks who are close to that individual who has died is going to remember them. But you know what? There's a saying that says this, life goes on. And as life goes on, people in the world, people who are not close to this individual, though they may have known them, will forget all about them. You know, I have a habit. Of getting up in the mornings, and one of the first things I do is read the obituaries. And I sort of jokingly and tongue in cheek tell people if I ever see my name in there, I'm going back to bed, right? But I'll get up, and, and I did one day, but I didn't go back to bed. It wasn't, obviously, it wasn't me, right? But I see names in there, and most of those people whose names are in the newspaper in the obituaries, I didn't know. And after I have read, and I try to do this, it's just sort of my way of maybe trying my best to honor that person. I'll read their name and what age they were when they passed away. Just trying to give some some recognition to that individual. But I, of all the names, and I've been doing this for years, and of all the names that I've read, other than names of people that I knew and was close to, I can't tell you whose names have been in the obituaries and who's not. In death, he says, there's no remembrance. And then finally he says this in verse 6, in death there's no participation. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. When someone dies, they don't participate in life anymore. Their participation in life is over. Death removes a person from this life. And again, it doesn't matter if they were good or bad, rich or poor, clean or unclean, religious or not religious. Committed or lazy, death will remove them from this life. This is the curse that we're under, folks. So, in verses 7 through 10, Solomon instructs us how to live in wisdom, knowing that we are under this curse. We're all looking at a singular fate. We're all looking at this sad fate, but here's what he says in verse 7. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth their works. You know what he's saying? You're only on this rock for a short time. Make the most of it. Now, I understand I don't use a lot of abbreviations in texting, but I understand in texting there's an abbreviation, Y-O-L-O. Anybody familiar with that one? You only live once. And that's true. In this flesh, you only live once. And so here, Solomon's saying, you only live once. You need to enjoy this life that God has given you. Now, he's not endorsing foolishness, but here's what he's saying. He's reminding us to make use of every opportunity that God gives us, of every bit of blessing that God gives us. Make the most of it. Find joy and satisfaction with the everyday good gifts that God gives us. For example, look at what he says. Eat thy bread with joy. You know what he's saying? Just enjoy a good meal. Just enjoy a good meal. Eat and and, and enjoy it and, and take pleasure in it. And he says, for this reason, for God now accepteth thy works. Now what does that mean? God has already said it's okay to enjoy your life. It's okay to eat a good meal. Don't be a glutton, but it's okay to eat a good meal and to enjoy a good meal. Again, no gluttony, no foolishness, but God doesn't give us good things and then say, now, here are all these good things I'm going to give to you. You can't enjoy them. No, God gives them to us and wants us to enjoy them. Why? It'll soften the burden, folks, of living in a cursed world, and we live in a cursed world. In verse 8, He said, Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Oh, what's he talking about there? Well, white garments always have the picture, always have the idea of joy. They have the idea of celebration. See, black garments and and ashes were to typify mourning and sadness. And so he says here, Let your garments be white. Let your head be covered with ointment or let your head be covered with oil. What does the oil have to do? With it? And I know in some situations, oil is used as a picture of the Holy Spirit but that's not what he's saying here. When he said, let your head be covered with oil in especially in the southern part of Israel, it gets very hot. They said when we were in Jericho area that sometimes it'll get 110 degrees in the shade in the summertime in that part. So if especially if you had a bald head, you know, and you went outside and the sun's beating down on your head and and it would dry the scalp out. So he says, put oil on your head so that the skin doesn't dry out, maybe on your face so the skin doesn't, doesn't dry out and you get this gaunt look about you. In other words, he says, dress up and clean up. Wear some white garments, put some oil on your head. Instead of going out and looking like you're in pain and looking like you're in misery. Have have you noticed how many people run around the world these days and they're either, I've noticed this especially, and I've mentioned this several times, so many young people just seem to have an anger in them toward the world, toward everybody, toward anybody. And they just have this sort of built-in anger. Well, that's not what God wants us to do. And I've noticed some of... Young people who, are, who profess to be saved sort of have that. No, God says, look, put on your garments of joy. Don't look like you're in misery. Put oil on your head so you don't look like you're, you're gone or, or that you're, you're starving or whatever it may be. This life is full of pain and it ends soon enough. We need to enjoy the blessings that God gives us in this life. Psalm 118 verse 24 says, This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We ought to get up every morning quoting that verse. Listen, if God brought you through the night and woke you up this morning, you ought to thank God that you've got today. And we should have gotten up and said, you know, some people will get up, some preachers especially, get up and say, Good morning, Lord, especially on a Sunday. And then they'll get up and say, Good Lord, it's morning, you know. But on a a Sunday especially, God woke me up this morning. God gave me breath through the night. God kept me alive through the night. And I woke up today and I should say, God made this day. And God gave me this day. I'm just going to rejoice in this day. Because there's going to be enough sadness come along. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 34. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Look, you're going to have enough problems today. Don't wake up in a bad attitude and and a sad attitude or a mad attitude. Wake up rejoicing that God gave you the morning. Then you'll be able to face the problems that come during the day. Enjoy life's simple pleasures. See, we want to enjoy the big events, don't we? Oh, we went here, we went there, we had a great time and all this. Just enjoy the simple pleasures. As I was thinking about this, I thought about something I did a few years ago. Hadn't done it since I was a child. Probably stressed the neighbors out a little bit if they saw it. But it was one of those days like it was yesterday, like it's supposed to be today. Beautiful blue sky, clear, warm and everything. And I just mowed the yard and I had all this dirt and dust on me anyway. So I looked up at the sky and I just laid down in the yard flat on my back looking up the sky. I hadn't done that since I was a child. But you know how good that was? How good that felt? Now, if you have neighbors living close by, you may upset them when you do that because they may call 911 for you, but especially if you're my age. Amen. Thank you. But just enjoy the simple things. It doesn't have to be some big, momentous occasion for us to enjoy it. Just enjoy the simple, everyday things that God gives us. Then he says in verse 9, "...live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity." God did not create us to be recluses. God did not create us to be loners. If you go back and look at that first chapter of Genesis... And the verses are verse 10, 12, 18, 21, 25. God's creating. And at the end of the day, the scripture says, God said it's good. God said it's good. God said it's good. Comes to the final creation. And God said it's very good. But you get to Genesis chapter 2. And you get to verse 18. And you know what God said? It is not good. Now why did God say it is not good? He said it's not good for the man to be alone. And that's when God gave him his helpmeet. That's when God created Eve. Here's what Solomon's saying. Especially if you're married, if you're thinking about getting married, okay? He just says this, enjoy the simple joys of love and of marriage and of a good relationship. That's what we ought to preach. If God has given it to us, he says, we live in a sin-cursed world that's full of pain and enmity and toil. So enjoy this wonderful and special relationship that God has given you. Boy, this is a real good verse to preach at a wedding service, isn't it? there may be a sense that God is saying this, since we know that death is waiting, instead of spending your life in anger and bitterness, spend it with your family. Spend it with your friends. Enjoy having that time together. There's nothing I like more than being with my family. So again, just remember that God has given this relationship and we ought to enjoy this relationship that we have. Solomon says, just enjoy your time with your spouse. And then in verse 10, he says this, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Now Solomon does not advocate idleness. You know what he advocates? Work. Enjoy your work. Work hard at whatever job that God has given you. And I think he'd say this, work hard and do your best. I gave our children two pieces of advice, or a piece of advice, as they were growing up, graduating high school, getting ready to go out into the work world. I said this: "If you'll just do this, if you will show up every day, and if you will be on time, and if you'll do your job, you'll be so far ahead of so many other people at work, just doing what you're supposed to do, just earning the money that you're working for." And that's what Solomon is saying here: Make the most of your life. Enjoy the simple pleasures. Enjoy the simple pleasure. Spend time with your spouse and work hard. Because you know what? Man was created to work. God designed us to work. God has given us these, as I said a moment ago, just lessen the burden of living in a world that is cursed by sin. And we ought to enjoy it. And then he gives us two very sound pieces of instruction in these first 10 verses. Number one is this. Quit trying to fix things you have no control over. How often do we want to solve every problem? We don't have any control over it. Just quit trying to fix things you have no control over and enjoy the simple, everyday pleasures of life. And then here's the second piece of advice work hard because there's no activity, there's no planning, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in the grave where you and I are headed. Work hard. And enjoy life because death is coming. It's a singular fate. It is a sad fate. And here's the last part of this. It is a sudden fate. You look at verses 11 and 12. And by the way, I said this a moment ago. But once men realize that death is coming. And once man realizes that he can't escape death. You know what he does? He goes from trying to avoid death. To trying to put death off as long as possible. I want to think about it. If I think about it, it may happen. I'm not going to think about it. I want to put it off as much as I can, as long as I can. How much of our thinking today involves trying to delay death? We have commercials on television that if you'll take this, if you'll do this, if you'll get involved in this program, if you'll lose this weight, if you'll take this pill, you can live longer. And we ought to want to live. See, I want to live as long as God wants me to live. And I hope that's a long time. I've shared with you one of the things that I don't like about death is the thought of leaving my family. That is the, the worst part of it, having to leave the people I love. But I know they're going to come join me one day. By the way, how do, you, how do you delay death? How do you prolong life? Listen to what he says in verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. How do you win a race? Be faster. How do you win a battle? Be fiercer. How do you become more successful? Be wiser. But you know what Solomon says? That's not necessarily going to do it. The fastest doesn't always win the race. It's not always the strongest that survives. It's not always the wisest that is the most successful. He says, Time and chance overtake them all. Chance here is not how we think of chance, you know, as well, it might happen, it might not happen. But chance here talks about an incident. We're all victims of time and of incidents. What do you mean, incidents? Things happen, folks. Things just happen. And what Solomon is saying, there's no certainties in life. You may be the fastest. But you may start out the race and didn't warm up properly and in the first mile you may pull a hamstring. You're not going to win the race. Something may happen in the battle but you lose the battle. Businesses. Listen, successful businesses and we've seen this in the last couple of years. Sometimes successful businesses fall on hard times. Fitness enthusiasts get terminal diseases or get hit by a bus. And so we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring and we don't know what's going to happen. And the question is this, are you really in control of your fate? And the answer is no. You and I are not in control. We can do everything we can. Everything that we know to do to be healthy and to be wealthy and to be wise and still incidents and time and things like that may change all of that. We think we have a say in our fate. we don't. And then here's what he says in verse 12, for man also knoweth not his time when it falleth suddenly upon them. What does that mean? Death is coming and you and I don't know when. I said, I wanna live a long time. I wanna live as long as God wants me to live. Are you gonna do that preacher? Well, I don't know, we'll find out, you know. And the only way I can find out is to live tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and take them one at a time again. We can, even trying to do everything we can to be healthy, we can die young or at least prematurely. And that's what God's Word is saying. He says, like fish caught in a net or birds caught in a snare. Evil time here. Remember what it says there in verse 12. For man also knoweth not his time as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, as birds that are caught in the snare. So the sons of men snared in an evil time. That evil time talks about a tragedy, a sudden tragedy, an accident. An accident. Who can guarantee me that at the end of these services in a few minutes that you can leave here and get home without being in an accident? No one can. We don't know what awaits out there. And so we just don't know. Fish caught in a net, didn't expect to get caught in a net. Birds caught in a snare, didn't expect to get caught in that snare. The 139th Psalm, right quickly. Psalm 139, verse 16. Verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. You know what that's saying? Here's the idea of it. Your eyes saw me before I was formed. God, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. God knows when he's going to call me home, and he knows when he's going to call you home, and then it says this, when as yet there was not one of them, before we were ever born, God knew we were going to live. God knew how we were going to live. And God knew and knows how we're going to die. God not only knows when death is going to come to us, but folks, he knows where and how it's going to come to us. There was a reason I put the warning at the beginning of this message. See, we don't like to think about death. Death is a reality. We better deal with it. And we better deal with it while we're alive because when we die, it is too late to deal with it. We all have one fate in this life. We don't know when it is, but we're running toward it at breakneck speed. For those that are younger than me, I'm going to tell you something. You start getting a certain age. I get up in the morning, I I have my routine set, and before I know it, it's noon. I'm thinking, well, I, don't, I haven't done enough yet. I've, <laughs> I've got more to do. And then I start doing, and before I know it, it's five, six o'clock in the evening. Where'd the time go? And then I turn around, and it's Wednesday. What well, time to go to church. And then I turn around, and it's Sunday. It's time to go back. And it just seemed like the older you get, the faster that clock moves. We're running toward the end at a breakneck speed and there's no escaping it. And we'd like to think only old people, sick people, reckless people like that die, you know, suddenly. But the fact is, any of us could. And since we all have this one fate, we need to be ready. Death and judgment are coming. And on the one hand, you ought to enjoy life. You ought to enjoy the opportunities and the little things and the greater wisdom that God gives you. But greater wisdom will also tell us to do this. I need to get ready for that day that God calls me home. For that day he requires my life of me. Death will come and it may come when we least expect it. But here's the beauty of the gospel. I wasn't going to talk about death without talking about the gospel and here's the beauty of it. God sent his son to forgive us of our sin and to conquer death. And the apostle Paul said, I'm sorry, I think it was the apostle John said, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. This flesh is going to die. There's nothing I can do about it. But years ago, many years ago, I made a decision that's going to take care of the spirit part of me. And that's the part that's going to last into eternity. And I turned to God in repentance and by faith applied the shed blood of Jesus Christ and God saved me. And I can talk about death. And even though the part about you know, leaving family behind saddens me, there's another part. I've got family members and friends that are in heaven that I'm going to get to see again. But most of all, like we sang just a moment ago, the first smile we're going to see is the smile of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, do you really believe that? I wouldn't be standing here telling you this if I didn't believe it. I not only believe it, I know it's true. It's, the Bible says it's true. God grants eternal life to those who place their trust in him. Because of the curse you'll die, but through Jesus you have life. And you have it more abundantly. I'm going to just share a little poem and then we're going to close. Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. Christ the cure. Are you ready? for that day to come. Are you ready for that knock on your door? And God says, child, come on home. I'm calling you home. I don't know who here this morning knows Christ as Savior and who doesn't. I know who has made professions of faith in Christ. But do we really and truly in our hearts know that we know that we know that we're saved? And if God were to call my name today, and say, it's time, I'd go and be with him. I hope you have that assurance this morning. Let's stand, please.